Thank you, choir. In a world that tells us that we need lots of things, it's a sermon in itself that Jesus is everything to us and that we need nothing else alone from Jesus. Thank you for that reminder. Beautiful song. This morning, we continue our series on what it means to be the church. As Gene prayed earlier, to be a light in Green Hills, in Nashville, and in the world. Who are we as Woodmont Baptist Church to be in the next 75 years going forward? And I'm, I'm finding out constantly more and more ways that our church is already being the church. I, I stumbled in on, on the nitwits, uh, what was that, Tuesday morning, Jackie, is that right? Tuesday morning, uh, these ladies that get together and knit, uh, nitwits with a K. And I, I thought that was a great idea. I thought it was a social club. And then I, I saw what they were making, and I found out that they were knitting things for homeless men, for room in the inn. They were knitting things to give away. They knit for the purpose of keeping people warm who don't have warm things that are lovingly handmade here at Woodmont Baptist Church. That's part of being the church, isn't it? I heard from Jan Region on Wednesday night about the food pantry I think she said they feed, what, 120 people, is that right, a week? That's incredible. Just an amazing ministry, an amazing amount of food that our church gives out every Tuesday morning from 10 to 12. This church is already being the church in so many amazing ways. I encourage you to find out about them and get plugged in. Next week, we're going to have a commitment Sunday where we're going to have cards that list all the things that this church is doing and how you can join and be a part of what the Lord is up to here at Woodmont Baptist Church and throughout the world through this ministry. So let's recap where we've been so far. We started out the first week in Genesis, always a good place to begin. And we talked about how Abraham had been called by God to, to begin making this special family, a special group of people that would be called out from the world and set apart for God's own purposes. And God promised to bless them, to pour out his love and blessing on these people through a promise called a covenant. They became covenant people. But the blessing wasn't just so they could live comfortably. It wasn't so they could just have a nice suburban home. The point of God's blessing was that they would be a blessing to the world. All the families of the earth would be blessed through this special group of people. And we know that those people became the Israelites. But what we may not realize, Paul brings up in Galatians 3, that the church are the heirs of Abraham. We are now the special called out family of God that is part of the covenantal promises that are blessed in order to be a blessing to the world. That's our purpose now. And then the second week, we talked about this idea of being missional. What does it mean to live intentionally, to eat breakfast in a missional kind of way, to drink coffee that is missional coffee, right? To wear clothes that are missional clothes. When we think about the mission that God has to redeem this fallen world and bring it all back to himself, it changes the way we do everything because we are no longer living for ourselves. But everything we do is to advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we can do that everywhere we go and through everything that we do. That's what it means to live missionally and to be missional people. And then last week, we talked about 1 Peter where it says that we are sojourners and exiles, that this world is not our home. 
that if, if you're a Christian, then your citizenship is now in the kingdom of heaven. That's important to remember during election season, isn't it? So this week, it makes perfect sense to read about a case study about some guys who find themselves as exiles. They become sojourners, strangers in a strange land. The story of, of how Daniel and his friends ended up in Babylon, this pagan, sinful place. Any text that we read is, is just not complete without context. So let's give a little background. Have you heard that phrase before, that any text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want to say? It's true. A lot of preachers and teachers can twist scripture and manipulate it for their own purposes, and we don't ever want to do that. So let's get a little bit of context on Daniel. Daniel is a book that's 12 chapters long, and it doesn't really fit anywhere in the corpus of scripture because it's not really prophetic literature. It's not really historical literature. It's its own unique thing. It's a beautiful book. It's split right down the middle. The first six chapters are these narratives, these stories about Daniel and his buddies and how they end up in Babylon and how they live as strangers in a strange land and how God blesses them in order to be a blessing. And then the last six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are these apocalyptic visions that Daniel has about these kingdoms that are all around him. Babylon, Assyria, the Medes, the Persians, all these different groups, and how God is going to win the final battle. There are powers that rage in this world, but our Lord is always in control. Daniel is a very missional book then. It gives us instructions for living as sojourners and exiles. And it also reminds us of God's purposes for the world, that God's going to win, that God's going to make all things new and set everything that's wrong right. That's the point of Daniel. So some historical information, and we know that Daniel was a, a young Jewish man. He was part of the royal court in Jerusalem, in Judah, the southern kingdom. And we know that in 605 BC, Daniel and his friends were taken hostage. They were taken as slaves to Babylon by the Babylonians. Here's some perspective historically where that fits into the big picture of the Bible, okay? King David ruled in about 1000 BC, okay? His son Solomon really started out great. We all know about his wisdom, but then he got greedy and it all fell apart after Solomon right, after his sons split the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was, and the northern kingdom, Israel, also known as Samaria or Ephraim, okay, and we know that after this split happened, God sent prophets to both kingdoms in order to get his people back, in order to soften their hearts and to get them to repent of their evil, wicked ways and to return to the Lord with all their hearts. But their hearts were hard and they rejected the Lord's prophets. And therefore, God raised up these mighty kingdoms all around Israel in order to judge them in his sovereign power and love and grace and mercy. So in 722 BC, he raised up the mighty Assyrians who came in and wiped out the northern kingdom, took all of Israel captive in the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer. We know that, that they had a few good kings, but most of them were wicked too. And that in 605, 
God raised up the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians and the Egyptians who used to rule Palestine where Judah was and he used the Babylonians to judge the people of Judah. The first wave of Babylonians came knocking on the door of Jerusalem in 605. And that brings us to Daniel in chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the temple, the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels from the temple into the treasury of his God. The Lord does not abide that. We know later in Daniel that the Lord judges Babylon. Verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and found competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So the Babylonians show up, they besiege Jerusalem, they attack it, and their custom of what they would do whenever they conquered a new people is they would take the best of the best. They would take the cream of the crop, some of the members of the royal court who were young and who were very talented and gifted, and they would haul them off into their land for a re-education program. They wanted to indoctrinate these young people into the ways of their culture so that when they eventually brought everyone back as slaves, they would already see their own leaders were already Babylonians at heart. Their, their point was to... to teach them that their culture was superior, that their gods were superior, that their ways were the best ways that would make the assimilation process smoother when they brought all the other slaves back. Can you imagine being Daniel and his friends in this situation? Being attacked in your own country, being ripped away from your family and from your home and taken hostage into a foreign land. Scary stuff, right? This is a terrifying time. It's not an easy thing to do to be a hostage, right? But you may remember what Martin Luther King Jr. said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Or as Jesus Christ said, that if you want to follow him, you must take up your cross daily and follow after him. It's a call to come and die. Another great leader, my mother, said that you really show who you are by what comes out when you get squeezed, or something like that. I forget what she said. I never listened. <laughs> but something like your, your character really shows in times where you are squeezed. What comes out is really who you are. Well, Daniel and his friends find themselves in a very uncomfortable, difficult situation. He's in a strange place. And it's not just a strange place, it's a pagan place. A deeply sinful place. We know that Babylon had over 40 pagan temples during this time. It was kind of the, the Vegas of its day too. It had this real hedonistic culture to it. How do Daniel and his other Israelite friends handle themselves 
when they find themselves in the midst of such a deeply ungodly culture? What comes out of them when they are squeezed in this place? Well, let's keep going. Verses 6 and 7. Among these young men who were exiled were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You may know the story of the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are the guys that we're talking about here. You see, their captives changed all of their Hebrew names that were given to them in Israel because each one of their Hebrew names referenced God. Each one of those four guys, their names, they showed a dependence on Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. So they changed their names. Daniel, which means God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, which means, uh, oh lady, <laughs> protect the king. Kind of an emasculating name, isn't it? Oh lady, protect the king. That was the name in the Chaldean culture that was given to Daniel. You see that Hananiah, Hananiah in Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what Yahweh is? Who is what God is? Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. And their names were changed. Shadrach in the Chaldean language means I am very fearful. That's what it means. I am panicky and afraid. That's what Shadrach means. Mishael uh, used to mean who was what God is. His name was changed to Meshach, which means I am of little account. I don't matter. That's what Meshach means. Abednego means servant of the shining one. The shining one was Nebo, one of the Babylonian gods. You see, in Hebrew culture, in Israelite culture, names were deeply tied to one's identity. For Daniel to be named God is my judge, was supposed to be what defined him as a person. Everywhere that he went, he knew that the Lord was judging between right and wrong, good and evil, life and death in Daniel's life. And to have their names changed was an attempt by their captors to strip them of their identity, to take away their dependence on Yahweh, the true God of heaven and earth. It was all part of their plan. I think that Christians are meant to feel some of this in our culture today, that we can relate to this idea of being challenged to assimilate into the culture that we find ourselves in and to lose our, our true identity in Christ. Have you ever had a job where you felt like you're the only Christian? I was talking to Christy Newton about this a couple weeks ago. She felt that she was the only real Christian in her workplace. Have you ever been in a work situation where it was not only accepted practices to lie, cheat, and steal for the good of the company, but it was expected of you to compromise your values and your morals as a Christian at work? Or I think of the gym that I used to go to. Inevitably, on Monday mornings, you were forced to hear the exploits of the guys from this past weekend and all of their different encounters that they had and all of their exploits that they had been uh, involved in over the weekend. We heard lots of cursing and crude talk in that gym always. You ever feel in this election season that you're the only Christian? You ever hear people degrade other human beings with demeaning language on social media or in person even? 
because they're so angry about what's happening in this country? Where is it that you go that you feel isolated in your faith, where you are tempted to assimilate into the pagan culture around you? How do you handle it when you find yourselves in those situations? Let's see how Daniel handled himself. I believe that there's four keys in this passage that show us how to live differently from the pagan culture around us in order to transform the culture around us. The first key is here in verse 8. It says that instead of being the product of our zip code, we can actually impact the culture around us for good. It says Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The first key to being different in order to make a difference is to resolve not to defile yourself. To resolve to abstain from the passions of the flesh as we read in 1 Peter 2 last week and to keep yourselves pure and holy in this world and unstained from this culture that we find all around us. Daniel and his friends resolved together not to indulge in the pagan food that broke all the Jewish laws that the, the king was offering them as a way of protecting themselves from being tempted to become good little Babylonians and just indulge in this feast that the king was putting before them. Just because you're in Vegas doesn't mean that you have to indulge in the hedonistic culture that is propagated everywhere there, right? You can still exist as a Christian there, right? You have to resolve to be different, though. The king wanted Daniel and his friends to be impressed by this amazing smorgasbord, this feast and this, this great spread of pagan foods before them, and to just pig out and enjoy it. But they resolved to resist his plan to turn them into good little Babylonians. In fact, Daniel knew that they were not Babylonians. That's the second key. The first one is to resolve. The second one is to remember. Daniel remembered who he truly was, that God is his judge, and that he would judge him accordingly. The key for us is to remember who we are in Christ now, in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Daniel didn't believe the lies of the culture around him that were telling him that you are this lady who is to exalt the king, <laughs> or Meshach, you don't matter, or Shadrach, you're very fearful. They didn't believe these new identities that were thrust on them, but they remembered who they truly were after God had made them his special covenantal people whom he loves very much. That's the second key, to remember who we are. There's a great song from a singer-songwriter in Nashville here, Jason Gray, who goes like this, when I lose my way and I forget my name, remind me who I am. In the mirror, all I see is who I don't want to be. Remind me who I am. In the loneliest places, when I can't remember what grace is, tell me once again who I am to you. Who I am to you. Tell me lest I forget who I am to you, that I belong to you. We're tempted to forget whose we are and who we are in this culture. If we can remember that we are the beloved children of God, it will change the way we live, won't it? 
Not only will it change the way we live, but it'll change the world. It'll change the culture around us. Let us remember who we are when we find ourselves in these strange and foreign places. We now have a new identity. Romans 8, one of Trey's favorite passages, says we're no longer slaves, right? But now we are children who have been adopted into the family of God. That is who we are. So how did Daniel standing firm in his true identity in the midst of this foreign culture work out for him? Let's read verses 9 through 16. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. God blesses his people, doesn't he? So that they will be a blessing. He gave him favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? He's saying, if you don't eat this food, you're going to waste away to nothing. But Daniel's sustenance comes from the Lord, not from Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel says in verse 11 to the chief, uh, the, the steward uh, that the chief of the eunuchs had assigned to him, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. Here we see the third key. First, he resolved to be different, right? And then he remembered who he was. And now here, he rejects assimilation. You've got to reject accepting what the world puts on you as who you are. Reject assimilating to the culture around you. We've mentioned before that the church in the New Testament is called the ecclesia. It comes from these Greek words that mean the called out ones. We are called out of the world. We read John 17 a few weeks ago where Jesus tells his disciples, you are not of this world, but you are sent into the world. That's the missional piece. We're different from the world. We are called to be set apart, consecrated, holy. That is who the church is to be. If we're going to truly be the church, we must be different than the world around us in order to make a difference in the world around us. Russell Moore, the president of the Southern Baptist uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, he said that the church thrives best when it's least like the culture around it. It's true, isn't it? Look around us. The Bible Belt, churches are struggling. It's true. Where is the church thriving in the world? Places like China, where it's deeply persecuted. The church is exploding there, right? Sub-Saharan Africa, where Boko Haram and all these other terrorist organizations, Christianity is thriving in these places. When the church is least like the culture around it, it thrives best. I think that's true. We saw last week in 1 Peter how the church is called to be sojourners and exiles to remember that this world is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we are now a holy nation in an unholy world. We wrestle against this fallen flesh that we all indwell, and it tries constantly to drag us back into the ways of the world around us. It calls us to compromise with the culture. People say, well, when in Rome, do as the Romans, right? Here we are, 
Just do whatever your context finds you in. When in Babylon, just act like the Babylonians, right? No, that's not what the Bible says the church is to be. We are to reject assimilation, to reject becoming like the world around us. So let's finish the story. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. He blesses his people. Did I mention that yet? In all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You see, God had a plan. He had a purpose. For this whole horrible episode in Daniel's life, God was using it and constantly at work behind the scenes. The last key for us here in this passage, we, we talked about we had to resolve to be different. We've got to remember who we are. We've got to reject assimilation. And now we've got to release our expectations of the future to God. Release what we think is really happening and let go of those expectations of what needs to happen and understand that God is God and we are not. We are but dust that God has breathed life into. He sees the big picture. We see uh, it's through a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13 says. The siege of Jerusalem that led to Daniel and his friends being taken hostage, being taken slaves, actually really worked out for their good and ultimately for God's glory, didn't it? That's why we're talking about it today. They became more powerful in Babylon than they ever were in Judah, and they were able to do much good in the culture they found themselves in to preserve God's people in captivity in Babylon. We're going to talk more about that next week. I can't wait. Jeremiah 29. And then it says that he stayed in Babylon until Cyrus the Great came. You know who Cyrus was? Cyrus was God's anointed prophet. He was the king of the Medes, the Persians, who came in and busted up the Babylonians. And then he sent all the Jews free. He let them go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their homeland. Cyrus, the great liberator. Daniel saw the deliverance of his people. You see, for the, the church, if we're going to be the church, then we must remember that for us who are called according to God's purpose, all things work together for our good and ultimately for God's glory. Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those people who love God, all things work together for good, for God's glory, for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose, his plan to redeem the world. That's us. So if we're going to be different in this world in order to make a difference let us remember these four keys this morning. We must resolve not to defile ourselves. Keep yourselves holy. Keep yourselves set apart as God's chosen people. Daniel shows us how to resolutely choose to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Two, we, we must remember who we truly are now in Christ. To remember that we are washed clean now by the blood of the precious Lamb, and there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If you are a Christian here today, behold, the old has gone and the new has come. Though outwardly you may feel that you are wasting away, it's true, but inwardly you are being made new day by day, 1 Corinthians 4. Third, we must reject assimilation to the culture around us. We know that we are not of this world. We are not ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the the one, the evil one, who rules the prevailing winds of culture. He's not in charge of us. Therefore, we do not have to obey him or conform to the world that he controls. And finally, we must release all our expectations about what's really going on here to God. Trust in his sovereignty that he is on his throne There's going to be a lot of anxiety in our nation over the next few weeks, isn't there? We as the church must not give in to fear or anxiety, but to trust that God is sovereign, that he is still on his throne, that he is going to use all the pain and hardships both in our church, in our nation, and in our own personal lives for his good, for our good, and ultimately for his glory. Trust in that. No matter what kind of season you're going through in your life right now, God is using it for good. We must trust in that. You may not ever see it until eternity, but God is using it for good. Believe that. I pray that we will all live into these four truths this week as we leave this place. Let's pray. Lord God, our desire this morning is that we would be the church that you called us to be. God, I pray that you would help us to live the way that you have called us to live, that we would resolve to be holy and set apart and different. God, I pray that you would help us to remember our true identity, that just like Jacob who wrestled with you and was given a new name, you've given us new names. We are no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of God. Help us remember that as we go into this world. And God, help us to reject becoming like the world around us. May we reject assimilation to the pagan culture in which we find ourselves daily. Help us to be different so that we can make a difference. And finally, God, this is probably the hardest one for most of us. May we release our fears, our expectations about what's happening in our lives to you this morning. May we renew our trust in you, the high and holy sovereign God of the universe this morning, knowing that you are working all things for good and for your glory. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.